to episode 410 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Reed Ramsey. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we're going to continue our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series with 1948's The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, um, which I'm really pumped to talk about. And I forced in there. So, yeah. Yay me. Same here. <laughs> Um, but let's go ahead and jump into some stuff that we saw this week. Reed, I'm going to kick it off with you because you saw the new uh, or the, one of the later latest um, Netflix movies. And so I'm kind of curious. I've heard mixed stuff on this, so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on Spiderhead. Yeah, I'd, I'd heard mixed things as well, but it's Spiderhead, and it's actually directed by Joseph Kaczynski, who directed the new Top Gun movie, so both released within like a month of each other, which is kind of wild. Yeah. Um, and this one was pretty much buried by Netflix. Uh, I remember people talking I about it. I noticed that. It was it cost them a lot of money. They have a big big name director. It's got Chris Hemsworth and Miles Teller, and then it's pretty much just been buried. But what what I'm surprised to figure out is about five minutes into this, I realized I've read the short story by George Saunders that this is actually based on. Um, it's in his 10th of December book. Um, but if you, if you've read that, it's a very kind of weird world he creates, um, with lots of like kind of futuristic lingo and stuff. Um, so it was very like, I'm watching this and I'm like, wait, why does this all sound so familiar? Why like these weird, like what is going on? And then I realized I've actually read this and then knew kind of where it was going. But, uh, the gist of the story is Miles Teller and this group of inmates are able to apply, um, for like this very nice prison where they can go and live kind of freely to an extent. Like they are locked in there. They don't have abilities to like leave, but inside it, they have a lot of freedom. They get to just like do very, uh, not high, not intense labor jobs. They get to hang out, play ping pong, lots of good snacks. Like they have a professional chef who's also an inmate. Like there's all like this, uh, it's just this very nice prison. But the thing is they are having, uh, drugs tested on them as part of like their sentence. So like they get all of this, but in order to get this, they're having all these new kind of new drugs tested on them by this pharmaceutical company. Um, so they ha all wear these little packs on their back that I guess are like attached to their bodies and they put these drugs in there and it like, uh, they can, the people facilitating it can control how much they're getting. And it's weird stuff. Like it's one drug that makes them just laugh uncontrollably. So they can be talking about something incredibly sad and still just laughing. There's a drug that makes them fall in love. There's one that like gives them like an immense amount of pain that they can't escape. So there's all these sorts of weird things they're being tested on. And some seem like fine. Um, others are really dark. Um, and mostly, like, they're still just, like, they don't have any control over their situation. And so it's, it's this weird, it's this interesting balance where the characters um, don't have that control, but they're kind of learning that in the moment because they feel like they have a lot of control. And Chris Hemsworth, as kind of the facilitator of this place, basically the warden, um, he is giving them the illusion that they have all this control, that they're, like, pampered and, like, living the high life, basically. Like, he's constantly giving them, like, very polite reminders that, they're really lucky to be there and to be with someone as wonderful as him. So it's this really manipulative uh, situation they're in. Um, but it's really, I actually, I thought it was very entertaining. I'm not sure uh, 
how much people who aren't interested in like science fiction or like a little more bizarre movies are gonna like it because it it's weirder than a typical blockbuster, which it makes sense why Netflix was the one to produce this. I think because usually like uh, most uh, companies aren't gonna throw a hundred million dollars at a movie this weird, um, and it's not like it's not doing anything crazy. But it's definitely doing some interesting things and very surprising at different points, partially because the source material. But then also, I think Joseph Kaczynski, as director, he just makes some interesting choices, like with music and the way he shoots things and has his uh, performers act, um, especially Teller and Hemsworth, who are excellent. And um, the way he does it, that makes it just kind of a, a really uncanny movie. Like, I'm not ever going to say everyone's going to like this, but if you go in with an open mind, like, you'll be entertained. It's what did you I mean, is it Joseph Kaczynski to me seems like an odd choice, not because he's a bad director. I mean, you think of I mean, like we, t- we talked about on the podcast a couple like a month ago, how much we love Top Gun Maverick. But even before that, you had like Oblivion and the Tron movie like but those movies are very like visual, like big visual, like blockbuster, yeah. like, you know, big screen, giant visuals, a lot of special effects, but in a way that seems much more like old school than like the movie i'm going to talk about in a couple seconds um so what so what did what did it i guess what did you make of his choice because that just seems odd like having this kind of condensed thriller to a degree like with him at the helm yeah i mean it's definitely it's definitely scaled back for what i've seen from from his other stuff i think the only one i haven't seen is the the firefighters one um, oh yeah, that I mean that too is still like a big you know big blockbuster production movie. Yeah, but this is definitely scaled back, and it's like it's almost more. And this movie is very divisive as well, but it's almost more like um, Alex Garland's Ex Machina. Well, he seems like somebody like that. That seems like much more linked as like let's do kind of a weird thriller with different like that have strange rules, like Alex Garland or you know somebody of that ilk who like is kind of into that stuff. Seems more. That's who I would assume would direct it. Yeah, no, exactly. And it, it definitely, it feels a little bit more like that, but it still is hitting, a, it while, while it's stranger than most blockbusters, it's still hitting a lot of typical notes at times. Um, but it is really condensed. But at the same time, the place they've built, like this prison, is just gorgeous. So like he still gets a chance to shoot these like really impressive scenes with um, this the set decoration is like minimalist and that it's a prison and there isn't all that much there but it's still like very sleek and beautiful and like like 21st century like uh very much trying to shoot something futuristic so he's still getting the opportunity to operate in like that super visual landscape um but you're definitely right it is a a weird step for him and a chance for him to focus more on like um emotion like emotional journey of characters because a lot of this movie is unpacking um, the traumas that brought these prisoners there to begin with. Because to get to get onto this into this prison, most of them had to be fairly nonviolent or at least like reformed nonviolent at this point. Because they have a lot of freedom to move within it, within and out of their like rooms, like go in. There's there's like a no locked doors policy. Like they can go wherever they want basically so they're all pretty non-violent so they all have these very um honestly super sad but very uh interesting backstories that led them there so he does also get a chance to step like more into the real world with some of those and shoot some scenes like one in particular that's like a driving scene um is more reminiscent of like what he does in top gun 
but yeah but yeah i would definitely recommend it yeah i was just looking and it's it's funny as well the the guys who uh adapted it from the george saunders story are the two guys who did the two deadpool movies i know which seems like a weird again another strange pairing of like let's psychological thriller let's get the deadpool guys i know that was a that was a big red flag for me i almost didn't watch this because i don't those movies i think are so (laughs) shitty honestly um but then like uh for whatever reason they pair decently with george saunders they don't try to do a lot that that isn't in the story or that is like outside the realm of the story which i think is interesting especially for adapting a short story to an hour and 40 hour 50 minute movie yeah yeah I, I'm kind of I'm kind of intrigued by it. I might not watch it immediately, um, but I'm kinda, I'm more intrigued by the first thing I asked of like why is Joseph Kaczynski doing this? Not because he's bad, but like it's such a strange choice. And so I'm I'm kind of interested on watching on that level. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it'll it'll scratch that itch. I think as uh, he directs more, as he directs more, well, like maybe there's more of an auteur there than most people would think. So maybe that'll come out in other other movies as well. Yeah, I mean, even though this one, you, you mentioned it was buried, <clears throat> you got to figure he's at least got somewhat of a blank check moving forward because uh, Top Gun made like a billion dollars already. So like that that should help him hopefully. Because I, I, like I, I need to watch the Firefighters movie, but Oblivion was one that wasn't like a good movie, but it wasn't really, I, don't, I can't remember if he wrote it or not. Who It just didn't have a good script. Yeah, or one I mean, that I you, think that movie I actually watched like a couple months ago. I think it suffers mainly from being a little boring and it's not yeah. boring visually or like in um, a lot of the direction. It's just kind of boring, I think, in terms of what the story is doing. Interesting. So he, he wrote for Oblivion. I don't know why we're going to get off this track real quickly, but like <laughs> Joseph Kaczynski had a unpublished graphic novel called oblivion and he like that's what the story is based off of but he didn't write the screenplay that's weird okay oh interesting but yeah i mean that's a movie that i agree like it's kind of boring but like also has these moments where like this was like cool (laughs) you know like yeah like i like i think he would be perfect to do like i mean Denny Villeneuve did a great job with like Dune, but like something like that, like in terms of just creating like this crazy sci-fi space. I'm like, that dude knows how to do that. Um, yeah, I agree. Well, cool. Well, Spiderhead is on Netflix. So I guess if you want to check it out, you can find it there. I want to talk about, I'm going to just freely admit before we dig into this one, I will spoil everything. So if you're a Marvel person, by me. I'm spoiling it all. And two, I hate watch this. I, I, I really, Sure, I go in with the intention of going, I might like this, but I really didn't, and I didn't like it. So I'm just going to be honest that I did not like Doctor Strange and Multitude of Madness. I was interested, this one more than other Marvel movies, I was curious just because of the Sam Raimi effect. Um, It's like, let me just say, good for Sam, got a nice paycheck. Um, Happy for him. (laughs) Happy for him. but this is the this is a crock of shit. Um, so this one, I I didn't rewatch the first Doctor Strange because I don't care. Um, but this one is like he, and this is already where I'm annoyed. Let me just say this is already where I'm annoyed because people were like, you gotta watch the Wanda show on Disney Plus to understand this. And I'm like, I'm not gonna do homework to watch a fucking 
Marvel. I'm like to a not just a Marvel movie, but a blockbuster movie. Like we just like we were talking talking off mic about watching the first Top Gun for Top Gun Maverick. You didn't need to. They told you what you needed to know, and you moved on. Like it didn't really matter. Um, but they were like, you got to watch the Wanda show. I'm like, I'm not gonna do that. And so um, in this one, again, if you know about the Wanda show, like I guess she like made up a whole town or like possessed a whole town or some shit and like just wanted to have these kids who made me laugh because her kids are named Bobby and Tommy, which seems like the most boring ass names to name like your imaginary kids that are like special to you. You're like, hey, Bobby and Tommy. Sounds like two guys <laughs> at like the, you know, at the grocery store you run into. Um, but uh, so then, so in this one, it's it's super weird. It like opens in media rest, which I guess maybe if I watched the Wanda show, I would understand, but I feel like not. But it opens in media rest where like this other like '80s nightclub, Doctor Strange is helping this girl named America Chavez, which I have. That's a whole other thing. Um, and she has like the ability to like jump through the multiverses, so which has become kind of a thing. People who have seen uh, Enter the Spider Verse or um, Everything Everywhere All at Once this year, like multiverse, it's the cool thing to do. It's the cool, you know, you jump, time oh, jump, yeah. and all that. It's hot. We're big on it. Big on the multiverse. Um, and so, uh, so, so she has like the power to just kind of go to these different places. She ends up finding the Doctor Strange that we all know and tolerate played by uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, <laughs> um, who it's really annoying watching him in these movies because after I watched Power of the Dog, I'm like, this dude's a great actor and he's just kind of hamming it. He's just, you know, hamming it up or just kind of lazying it up in uh, in these movies. Um, it's unfortunate. But he gets a good paycheck, so I guess, you know, good on Benedict. He gets a big... He came from a rich family, so I don't feel bad, you know. <laughs> anyway, anyway, anyway. And so uh, they, she teams up with this Doctor Strange, and then Wanda's pissed off because Bobby and Tommy aren't there. Um, and so she, like, is like, I'm going to destroy all the multiverses. And you're like, cool. Um, so the rest of the movie is just Doctor Strange and this America girl time jumping around and trying to fight Wanda, who's... Uh, what's what's her face elizabeth olsen which can we get like can somebody like help elizabeth olsen like she needs i i don't know if this means the end of her marvel time or what like but get this girl like some like actual movies because this is her life now in this one she's particularly bad like i'm just like i'm just like girl like like none of it is great i mean it's it's all like superhero movie acting but she is like she's she like makes a choice and I'm like, I don't think that was the right choice. You're trying a lot. <laughs> <laughs> she, you know, she she kind of feels like she's in a, like in a '60s B movie, um, but not entertaining. But uh, that's the gist of it. But so, the one thing, like the kind of big spoilery thing, I guess, is they go to this one universe, and then the dude from the first movie, played by Chiwetel Ejiofor. Um, like captures Doctor Strange. He's like, we gotta get rid of you. And I, I don't really know what's happening. I don't. At this point, I'm so angry. I don't care. Um, but they have they meet up with the the Illuminati, and the Illuminati is like, um, this dude who like can like use waves to like kill people, which is whatever. And then it has the the chick from Captain America, but she's Captain America. But it has the British flag, so I was like, that's confusing. Um, then the lady who wasn't the lead in Captain Marvel. This shows my extensive Marvel knowledge. 
one of the off leads in Captain Marvel, who was also in the new James Bond movie. Um, uh, John Krasinski playing Reed Richards, uh, Mr. Fantastic. John Krasinski's in it? Yeah, and he's playing Mr. Fantastic, and I guess he might be Mr. Fan. I don't know. He's boring. So he's Is that in another multiverse that he's Mr. Fantastic? I don't know. It's I just like he shows up and I'm like, oh, you're here. Um and then the big the big <laughs> reveal is that Patrick Stewart as Professor Xavier is there in like this giant chair. Um but that scene is also the funniest thing I've ever seen because they proceed uh what's her face comes in to like fight him and proceeds to kill all of them. <laughs> Like so, at one point, this is honestly worth the, the the price of watching this movie. At one point, she just pulls apart Captain or uh, uh, Mister Fantastic, so you get to watch John Krasinski just get ripped apart. And I'm like, hell yeah, this was great. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm like, hell, like that's amazing. It was. I was like, this is what I've been wanting to do for mo- for years now. It's just like, just go, <laughs> all right, see ya. Um, it's a little upsetting watching her like kill. Uh, Patrick Stewart because you're like you don't want Patrick Stewart to die I mean I don't really care about the character but you don't oh, want wow. Patrick Stewart to die like that's, that's such a, such a mm. sad thought um, otherwise it's I just don't care this one so I went on a big rant about the Spider-Man movie when that one came out on the podcast and this one feels very much the same that one at least so that one was very much playing on your nostalgia and is like throwing out did you see this new Spider-Man one yeah, and I, I heard y'all talk about it a little bit on the podcast. I, I like this. I think like that one more than anyone on the podcast. But it is, on, like, I only liked it really because of the nostalgia. Like, those were the best parts. Yeah. Well, I think I said that also. Like, <clears throat> I'm not, I'm a human. So, like, when I saw Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield, not Andrew Garfield as much, but, like, Tobey Maguire show up, I'm like, oh, this is cool. You know, and, like, Willem Dafoe, I'm talking about Elizabeth Olsen hamming it up. He's also hamming it up, but, like, in the oh, most yeah. fun way. Um, he knows how to how to do it. Yeah, he knows how to do it. And so that one is very much like, as I said in the podcast, kind of utilizing these, at least in the in the which is ironic that Sam Raimi's directing this, but utilizing the Sam Raimi trilogy, which is unequivocally better than anything since then, to like justify like to it was like it's like it was like pulling its essence of good into this to make it look good, even though it wasn't a great movie. Um but this one is weird because it like tries to. Um, <clears throat> I told Andrew that it feels like I'm watching a Marvel, a Disney shareholders meeting, because it just feels like it's like setting all this shit up for you. You know, it's like oh, well, we even though these I, I described all those characters and they die, like it's a multiverse thing, so technically they could still show up. Um, and it's kind of like, and it just kind of annoyed me because I'm so you know I was thinking. <clears throat> There's, I think, there's a lazy analogy, uh, and I'm, and I'm, uh, I've, I've made it, I've made it in the past, and I was incorrect by making this, but there's a lazy analogy that like superhero movies today, are like westerns were like in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, even something like what we're going to talk about in part two, uh, which kind of has like western qualities to it, um, and that it's because because you know in like the 20s, 30s, and, and 40s and 50s. Um, they were just cranking out West- westerns. You'd have like you know thirty western movies or some just just a, a crazy amount of different western. Movies. It wasn't just like John Ford or Howard Hawks. It was just also just random ass western movies. And you get like into the sixties and you got like spaghetti western. Like westerns are always just kind of cranking out. Um, but I think what's different between why that analogy is incorrect is even when 
is like there there's kind of a different you can differentiate between the different westerns like you have the ford ones you have the howard hawks ones you have like uh, uh like something like high noon you have you know you have so many interesting western movies and you still have interesting superhero movies but at least i'm gonna i'm talking strictly about marvel we've gotten to this point where there's no you're you're not really one delineating any style from it which is upsetting because you have somebody like sam raimi helming this one who can make it fun and he makes it fun at times but not enough that you're like oh sam saved this movie um there's a really cool sequence where like doctor strange is fighting this other doctor strange and i'm not going to get into why they're fighting each other but like they start fighting each other with like these kind of classical music sheets um and they'll start and so like it's like Takata and Fugue and Beethoven's Fifth uh, and which sounds strange but like there's like this the way that they he like kills all the music and a lot of the ambient noise and so it's just kind of like them throwing these notes and the notes kind of have these the, and you know Danny Elfman's doing the score and like they have these kind of eerie different melodies but at the same time you you're familiar with the musical notes um and it's really cool it's kind you know it's like yeah this seems like something that at least it's not gonna not gonna work for everybody but it's kind of like visually interesting and play and it at least is like playing with sound playing with visuals things like that which is and you just don't get that a lot in marvel movies i think you know it's it's disappointing be in to go back to the western analogy like i said like those even though they were a giant influx they were at least kind of of at least willing even you know willing to try new things even somebody like john wayne who definitely hammed it up at the end of his career was at least doing interesting westerns i mean for every ham and ham performance he might have given there's like you know liberty valance or stagecoach or or red river or things like that where it's like it's a fucking interesting uh movie and i just i think marvel is just so i just can't handle it and i like i'm just done because it's just so i'm not to get like I'm worried about this, you know, the society or worried about culture, but it's frustrating now that like movies like this are so popular and it's all like it's just not it's it, it's theoretically built on narrative, but it's built on narrative to the same way that like a crossword puzzle is where you get the, the correct thing or you recognize the correct thing. And that's how that's that's supposed to elicit the, you know, the serotonin or whatever from you. It's not, oh, this story was super in, like it's like what we're going to talk about in part two. This story was incredibly satisfying on like a psychological level on like a, you know, he, on all these different levels. And I and I'm just sad that now um, with movies like this and there's you know you definitely have like the top guns and other things that are different but like for these movies which are so widely popular it's sad that like the only level it's working on is oh i know that person or oh i know that character um it's just so boring to me i think that's i think you're kind of hitting on the head a little bit which like i mean obviously we've been talking about superheroes for 15 years now but um the with the westerns analogy when westerns would talk to one another or build off one another in any sort of way it was always in an interesting way and i think the way that marvel movies do it is just like just so you so you have done your homework it's like so you know what's happening in the next one whereas like you have the example of from the 50s um fred zinnemann making the high noon and then john wayne saying this communist piece of shit i'm gonna make rio bravo with howard hawks Am I? Is, it is Rio Bravo, right? That's the response to that. I think so. I could be wrong. Um, but so like the, the that way, communicating on like political ad- allegories is much more interesting than like, 
oh, I know who Chiwetel Ejiofor's character is in this movie, because frankly, I had no idea Chiwetel Ejiofor would even be in this movie. Um, Dude's so getting a paycheck. Know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Good for him. Uh, it's the same thing, good for him, but yeah, yeah it's not, it's a- not interesting. And yeah, I mean, it's not, I don't want to sit here and belabor and be like, we got to do something. Cause I mean, it is what it is. Um, you know, I'm I, at this, uh, like, that's why I've been so happy to see <clears throat> stuff like, especially this year, stuff like ambulance or which have you seen ambulance read? Cause no, I feel like that's I'm a gonna read. Love it. I'm going to love it. You're going to love that movie. It's, it's you're going to have to so come bad. back on when you watch ambulance. So we can talk about ambulance. Yeah, I um, will. I, um, when it was playing in IMAX, I only played in IMAX for like a week here. Um, in New York City of all places, only a week. Um, and my my dog was having like these, he was having a bad bout of separation anxiety we had to get fixed. So I didn't see a movie in theaters for like a month, but missed Ambulance, yeah, every, which is a bummer. Whenever you watch Ambulance, you're gonna love that. That's gonna be like five stars. Um, but st- st- stuff like Ambulance, stuff like uh, Top Gun Maverick, even something like Jackass Forever, which like is doing interesting film stuff. Like, so it, I, at this point, I've kind of just reserved myself because I'm like, there's also there's there is still like interesting uh, blockbuster stuff out there, so I just kind of ignore it. But I don't know. Like at this point, Marvel's at like this really to a degree fascinating point where it's just so like it's just kind of like too, it's like a snake eating itself that like I'm just like where like where do you go from here I guess I guess you can go forever because people like seeing that but I'm like I feel like after a while it has to get it has to get tiring like anything else um I don't know it's but this one I mean this one I I can't even classify really like as a movie it's just kind of like and this character is so weird because it's like they know that he's not interesting enough or like compelling enough that people will go on their own. And so that's like why he's in like the Spider-Man movie and why he has all these other people in his movies. It's like, I, it, like it, that's what's funny also is like at least like with Thor and Iron Man and Captain America, you didn't really have to do that mm-hmm. because people like them on their own. Um, and now all the movies are just such mashups because it's like, here's, you know, this character that you don't really care about, but we got to crank out movies. Yeah, no, that's true. And the, like to speak to that, they always pitch that at least both Doctor Strange movies have been probably pretty inaccurately pitched as horror movies to the general audiences, too. Like, I remember when the first one came out, it was like, oh, who directed it? Is it Scott Derrickson? Uh, Scott Derrickson, yeah. Yeah. Who's a um, horror director. Yeah, people are like, it's going to be like a horror movie. And then Sam Raimi on this one, they're going to be like, this. then people were like, no, this one really is like a horror movie. And I'm like, all right, sure. It's still like a superhero movie that has to cater to kids and families. Yeah, and that's what it has. I mean, like, they, they went through that period where they're like, it's not a superhero movie. It's a political thriller. It's not a superhero movie. It's a John Hughes movie. And you're like, no, it's not. They're all fucking superhero movies. And that's fine. And if you like that, that's fine. But, like, it's just so, like, creatively uninteresting that, like, I don't... Like, we were talking off mic. Like, I'm probably not going to go see the new Thor movie, even though I kind of like the last Taika Waititi one. I'm just like, who knows with this one, the trailers look really boring and dull. It looks like they're looping in the guardians of the galaxy. Cause they're probably not going to get another one of those movies for a minute. And I'm just like, like, it's just whatever. Like, come on. Yeah. yeah. So, um, Dr. Strange and the multiverse of madness is on Disney plus, And I would not recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, you know what's on Peacock right now? If you have Peacock, Ambulance. Go watch Ambulance. It's incredible. I loved every second of it. Oh, my God. Or go to Netflix and watch Triple R. 
Yeah. Which we've oh talked about for like the last for like three times in the last four weeks. Go watch Triple R. I, I wish. I wish I would would have talked about that actually, but it's been over time. No, it's we're, great movie. Cinematary's firm in like the like there's there's a stamp on the movie that just says like Cinematary approved. Yeah, I feel confident I won't be ruining the end of year rankings this year like I did with old this past year. Well, you were it was funny, you were describing uh Spiderhead and like them testing these drugs on him. I'm like, are you just like into those types of movies because that's literally what old's about? <laughs> maybe, maybe that's my genre. <laughs> that's reach genre, people getting ha- having uh drugs tested on them unwillingly. <laughs> maybe. Add like dark waters in there about uh you know yeah who knows <laughs> uh, all right we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be back talking about a much better movie than what we've talked about so far and that's the treasure of C- of the Sierra Madre after this. of Cinematary in this part. We're going to be continuing our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series with 1948's The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which was written and directed by John Huston. The film stars Humphrey Bogart, Walter Huston, Tim Holt, and Brent Bennett. Two rough-and-tumble wanderers, Dobbs and Curtin, meet up with a veteran prospector, Howard, in Mexico and head into the Sierra Madre Mountains to find gold. Although they discover treasure, they also find plenty of trouble, not only from ruthless bandits lurking in the dangerous uh, wilderness, but from their own insecurities and greed, which threaten to bring conflicts at any moment. Uh, the B. Traven... Uh, B. Traven? B. Traven novel was purchased by the studio in 1941 as a vehicle for John Huston. Uh, but, but, but by July 1942, Huston was in the Army filming uh, documentaries. And in a memo dated July 14th, 1942, producer Henry Blank asked story editor Jim Geller to send a copy of the book to Edward G. Robinson for his consideration. Uh, in December 1942, Robert Rosen was working on a draft of the screenplay, but the film was eventually postponed and not revived until Houston's return from active duty at the end of the war. The extent of Rosen's con- contribution, if any, to the completed film has not been determined. Uh, Ronald Reagan was considered for the role of Curtin, which would have been morally wrong um and zachary scott was a possibility for the role of cody the studio had george raft edward g robinson and john garfield in mind for the three main roles but then world war ii intervened by the time houston came back from making several documentaries for the war effort humphrey bogart had become warner brothers biggest star when bogart first got wind that houston might be film making a film in the novel he immediately started badgering houston for a part bogart was given the main role of fred c dobbs before filming bogart encountered a critic while leaving a new york nightclub and said quote wait till you see me in my next picture i play the worst shit you ever saw 
Uh, Traven initially disagreed with Houston's decision to cast his father, Walter Houston, as Howard, preferring Lewis Stone, but eventually came to agree with Houston. Walter Houston also questioned his son's choice. He still saw himself as a leading man. He was not keen on being cast in a supporting role. His son was able to convince him to accept, and John Houston rated his father's performance as the finest piece of acting in any of his films. On seeing Houston's performance, Bogart famously said, quote, one, Houston is bad enough, but two are murder. Uh, during the shooting of the film, uh, John Houston pl- pulled pranks on Bennett Bod- uh, Bedoya along with Bogart and Bogart himself. While most of the film was shot in Mexico, Jack L. Warner, Jack L. Warner had the unit return to Hollywood when the budget started to exceed $3 million. Though the daily rushes impressed Warner Brothers, Warner nearly went berserk with the weekly expenditures. After viewing one scene, Warner threw up his hands and shouted to producer Henry Blank, quote, Yeah, they're looking for gold, all right. Mine. During another screen of rushes, uh, Warner watched Dobbs stumble along in the desert for water. Warner jumped up in the middle of the scene and shouted to a gaggle of executives, quote, If that SOB doesn't find water soon, I'll go broke. Uh, Houston's original uh, film depiction of Dobbs' death was more graphic as it was in the book than the one it made it, uh, that it made on the screen. Uh, when Goldhat strikes Dobbs with his machete, Dobbs is decapitated. Houston shot Dobbs' fake head rolling into the waterhole. A quick shot of Goldhat's accomplices reacting to the head rolling in uh, reacting to the rolling head remains in the film, and the very next shot, uh, one can see the water rippling while it rolled in. The 1948 censors would not allow that, so Houston could camouflage the cut shot with a repeat shot of Gold Hat striking Dobbs. Warner Brothers Publicity Department released a statement that Bogart was, quote, disappointed the scene couldn't be shown in all its graphic glory. Bogart's reaction was, quote, what's wrong with showing a guy get his head cut off? Um... As production dragged on, Bogart, an avid yachtsman, was getting increasingly anxious about missing the Honolulu race in which he usually took part. Despite assurances from the studio that his work would be done by then, he started to pester Houston about finishing in time. Eventually, Houston had enough, grabbed Bogart by the nose, and twisted hard. Bogart never again asked him to confirm when shooting was expected to be over. Uh, novelist B. Traven was a mysterious character who refused to reveal any information about himself. Although he exchanged numerous letters with John Houston, Life reported that he, while on location in Mexico, Houston was approached by a man who called himself Hal Croves, who claimed to be Traven's translator. Houston hired him as a technical advisor. Uh, when Houston later speculated in print that Croves and Traven were one and the same, Croves wrote an angry, angry letter of denial pointing out that he was paid $150 a week, far less than an author of Traven's fame was worth. According to a December 22, 1978 New York Times article, though, a research team for the BBC later confirmed Houston's theory. The BBC discovered that Traven's real name was Herman Albert Otto Maximilian Feige, uh, Feige and that he was born in 1882 in Poland. He supposedly fled Germany in 1919 to escape a death sentence for his revolutionary activities. In 1948, Variety said, if the box office is currently ailing from an over-diet of films that look too much alike, you know, like we were talking about earlier, uh, then this production is what the doctor ordered. The treasure of the Sierra Madre is not only radically different, but it's distinguished work that will take its place in the repertory of Hollywood's great and enduring achievements. And in 1948, the New York Times said, greed, a despicable passion out of which other base Ferments may, spe- may spawn. It's seldom treated in the movies with the frank and ironic con- contempt that is vi- vividly manifested toward it in Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And certainly the big stars of the movie are rarely exposed in such cruel light as, wit- as that which is thrown
thrown on Humphrey Bogart in this new picture. But the fact that this steel-springed outdoor drama transgresses convention in both respects is a token of the originality and maturity that you can expect from it. On that note, let's talk a little bit about the treasure of the Sierra Madre. Um, Reed, this was your first time watching it, so what were your impressions of it? Yeah, I actually I actually thought I had seen this before, and I realized it was um, Bogart's other movie, The African Queen, that I was getting it mixed up with. But um, I I really liked this movie. It it kind of caught me off guard. I was telling telling you a little bit before we started recording that it was it was much darker than I expected, and the the notes you just kind of went through I think allude to that a bit with the decapitation scene, but then also just like the overall greed. It's a very like dark shadow hanging over this movie for at least half the runtime basically basically once and i mean it's 70 years old so we can spoil a little bit um but like once humphrey bogart's character starts to like lose his mind a little bit it becomes just like you're just waiting for something horrible to happen either to him or to some of the other characters or to just anything. I don't know. What were you going to say? When it starts and and like when it starts doing that, it it is just kind of like hanging in the air because you're like, something's going to happen and stuff, stuff will present itself where you're like, that's when it's going to happen. But it just, it literally hangs there until the very end when the, you know, when he does finally die. Like that's the only time it actually acts on it. Like for the the rest of the movie, it's just kind of hanging there. And yeah, you're just sitting there. I remember the first time I watched it, like sitting on edge, like, well, is this like, is this guy going to get him? Or is this, these people going to get it? Like, you know, it's just, it's constantly, or is he going to do something to the other two? Like, um, yeah, Bogart's great in this. It's, it's kind of funny that like the Maltese Falcon and Casablanca and, and things like that are like his most well-known. Cause I'm like, this is probably an, uh, an, uh, what? Oh shoot. I'm like, I'm, I'm blanking on the Bogart movies that I, there's another Bogart movie that I love so much. The, the, um, What's it called? The uh, Nicholas Ray movie. Oh, um, uh, in a lonely no. In a in a lonely yeah, place. Yeah, yeah. I love that one too. That's another like dark. Uh, I just had a brain fart. Um, that's another like dark like uh, Bogart character. And like the think that like at this time he's like at the height of his stardom, and he's playing this like completely despicable character, and also like you know theoretically gets decapitated at the end of the movie is like the most like the fact that they like were even going to shoot something that showed it is like the ballsiest move ever because like like i was telling you like that's like if you know top gun maverick ended with like them decapitating tom like you know them capturing and decapitating tom cruise like i'm like that would be that's pretty like it's the same thing like this is the biggest star in the world and they just like we're going i'll just cut his head off yeah i had to that would be jarring yeah yeah i had to double check the like release here multiple times because it feels more like the movie he would have made like 10 years prior because he also doesn't feel like like the main character it's definitely mostly from his point of view and it opens with him and you follow him more closely but it's not like it's not like the other two guys are that supporting in comparison to him well you definitely shift over at a point to curtin and howard but it's it's also not yeah i don't i I mean i could sit there and think about it maybe there is a pinpoint point uh, part where you're like oh this is but i'm like you just kind of at some point kind of go this something's up with this guy and that's like the part like whenever you decide to do that that's when the story changes the perspectives and the way that it's able to kind of fit that perspective is so fascinating um yeah this this is my second time watching it and i absolutely was floored by it i think i talked about it on the podcast um by the first time i watched it um and this time i definitely clued in just to 
like the nuanced ways this like handles the topic of like greed you know like there's so many movies about greed and people like wanting more money like all and that's but there's like such a nuance to this because everything feels so to a degree morally ambiguous like you think about like the scene and it's a testament to like Walter Houston, at least in terms of like the cast of characters, because he's always kind of like that middle ground. And, you know, you think of like the scene when um, is it is it Brody or Bodie, uh, the, the Bennett character? Let me let me look real quick. Cody, when Cody shows up, when Cody shows up and kind of throws the wrinkle where he's like, yeah, um, I he pretty much finally is just like, I know what you're doing. Like either you can let me join, you can let me leave or you can kill me. Um, and like they have like that whole like the three of them are sitting there figuring out what to do um, like those types of situations where you're, you're kind of supposed to kind of figure out the the moral way to follow through with this it is like the way it's handled is so kind of murky that it makes it much more interesting than them just like debating oh let's kill this guy or let's you know let him join like there there's just kind of and that's why i say it's a testament to walter houston's character because he kind of just he's the one who always like stirring the pot to make it more morally ambiguous than you probably want to give it credit for yeah i agree and i think the other interesting thing about his characters he's like so he's he's john houston's out obviously so he's a good bit older than the other uh characters here um and he is experienced in this in a way that they aren't and in the beginning of the movie, he kind of forecasts what's going to happen to an extent. Yeah, but but you know the funny thing is that like Bogart ends up being the crazy one, but they kind of present the Howard characters like, oh, this guy's a kook. You know, they even talk about exactly. That. Well, he has he has a few different moments where he does really bizarre things, including like the very end with like the laughter. That scene is, I mean, he's amazing in that scene. But um, in general, like you you see this guy telling them what's going to happen. They're gonna find $25,000 worth of gold. They're going to want 50. They're going to find 50. They're going to want 75 and so on and so on and so on. And, uh, Bogart and uh, I'm so bad at names. Uh, Kurt, uh, um, Tim Holt's Curtin. character. Curtin. Yeah, yeah. Tim Holt. Curtin are like, well, we'll, we'll just get what we need and get out. Cause they're both like so poor. They're like any amount of money would just make my day, help me get on in a better spot in my life. And then as soon as they hit like $25,000 each, Bogart's like, why would we stop now? He's like, we're just, we need to go and go and go. And I just thought that was fascinating, the the way it forecasts that. And then even the way um, uh, Walter Houston's character, uh, he he has kind of a happier ending than any of the other characters because he gets to be like this to doctor, ch- yeah, he gets to fake chill. medicine man in this tribe, yeah. Um, but even that is based in greed. Like, sure, he doesn't have to search for gold anymore, but he gets to lay in a hammock and be hand-fed, like, fruit and then check on people every few minutes and be a fake doctor, basically. Yeah, and that's why that's what's so great about the movie because it's so... Everything has a kind of an ambiguity to it because, you know, I think to a degree, even though I don't, you know, like, personally agree with it, you can understand... Bogart's point of view of like, well, if we can get th- like if we can get fifty, like we might as well just keep going until we drain the thing. Um, but then it's but but I feel like I'm more aligned with like Curtin, who's just like, yeah, I just need this amount of money and then I'm good. Um, but yeah, the way it leaves him, I mean, you you end up with like Bogart dead because he just continues to get mo- he gets more and more paranoid about you know people impeding on 
his money and like kind of wanting to take his money and what their intentions are. Um, and then Curtin, you know, Curtin has like kind of a weird ending where he's like, I'm just going to leave, but he's going to go and like see the widow of the dead guy, you know? And you're like, is he going to like go <laughs> yeah, marry the widow? So weird. You're like, are you going to go marry the wet, the dead guy's will? You're going to let him, her know that her husband's dead and be like, so what about me? Um, yeah. And he's then, also poor. Like he doesn't have anything. Yeah. And then you, like you talked about Howard's ending. And so it's like, yeah, there's not like, you know, I, I was really interested this time around with Tim Holt's performance as Curtin because he's and honestly I've seen him in a number of things now he's a really good actor you know he's he's perfect in the role uh, in Magnificent Ambersons where he's like the son growing up kind of coming back as, as they're on the kind of tail end of their power as a family and he kind of has this like this this um, snottiness this uh, you know to him this uh, privileged you know idea of what he deserves um, and in this one, though, he really does have kind of like this, he's very, like, he has this kind of steady hand. He just has this face that kind of has like naive, like it's a little bit naive looking, but also as you go along, realize that he is just, he's actually pretty wise and level-headed. Um, and to me, it's just such an interesting performance where you meet him, he's just kind of this throw-off character. You think he's going to kind of be the right-hand man to Bogart, and then he completely like surpasses, at least in terms of characters, like Bogart's character because he just like the way that they morally look at money is so drastically different that that kind of dissonance creates the tension of the movie. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I thought, I don't, I just looked it up. I think the only other thing I've seen him in is Stagecoach because I have not seen the Magnificent Ambersons. And I don't remember him in Stagecoach at all. That was years ago. He's not big in that. And then I remember him in, uh, he has a small role in Clementine. But like, I, I don't know, he's, he's been in, a, he, he was in a gazillion and he was in a lot of Westerns, especially where he was like the star of the Western. But like this one, to me, I really like, because I think he just kind of has like this innocence to him. And you kind of take it, he's, he's the naive one. Like he, like you got Walter Houston's character who is a kook but knows you know what they need to do you have bogart's character who's greedy but seems to kind of like know like what he wants to accomplish with this and you got oh curtain's just along and is kind of innocent naive but he ends up to be like one of the more nuanced characters of the of the movie Um, yeah well that's one of the i think the treats of this movie is that all three of those characters and then even like um Oh my God, you just said his name. That's how bad I am with it. Cody. Even like Cody, briefly in it, is a very nuanced character. Like he's got maybe 10 minutes in the movie and he's still very interesting and has a lot of layers. And I think that's just not always the case with any movie that you have like multiple characters with a lot going on. Especially one that's going to, sh- I mean, the the thing that's also great about this, it just has, it. you know, the way that they set up just these, a lot of these side characters, like you, you mentioned Cody's interesting, even like at the beginning, you have John Houston playing the guy in the white suit, the American in the white suit who gives Bogart money is an interesting character. The guy that, uh, that uh, Dobbs and Curtin go and work for, um, who rips them off is an interesting, like, and you have like that really just, I was reading that that um, fight scene in the bar takes like to like took a long time to shoot um, because and it's such a weird, it's just strange, interesting. Like it reminds me a lot of like Greg Tolan uh, in in Orson Welles movies, like the way that they just shoot it and they have these kind of strange angles to it that you're just like it's just a bar fight. Um, but I, I the you know the thing I and this and this is definitely what attached attracted me the first time I watched it was just kind of that nuance and how it handled that because it's 
you know, it's it, even though it's not really a Western, it kind of has a Western. It kind of does have this Western vibe of like it's a morality tale. And in even if you don't like Westerns, like most of the time, that's what those are. Um, right. And, and like it's interesting that like. I think I think this one also has kind of a fascinating picture of like non white Americans like the way that they depict a lot of the like Mexican whether it's the people in the town whether it's the people who live out in the woods that uh, Howard helps to the even the bandits in, in like that there's like it's it's a much more it's a much more um more well thought out like depiction in in like they're given a lot of agency and a lot of um a lot of like they actually have personalities when you think compared to like what you think of with some where it's just like a random native american tribe or it's something like or, or they're just like savage mexican people or something like no you have a wide range of different mexican people in this movie that are not the three main characters yeah i think i that really hit home with me because i think it it lends itself to the whole movie which feels very honest as a whole in terms of like the way houston shoots it um the locations and stuff and i wasn't surprised to hear that he actually shot a lot of it in mexico because it's it seems so like honest towards that situation they're in the jungle the desert all of that but then also just the way the people are there it's not it doesn't seem like people on a los angeles lot like in hollywood it seems like he actually went to location and chose people that would give that really like nuanced depiction of this place and not just like a cheap shot from california um, which like made it made it so interesting. Yeah. Well, it makes it much more authentic. And I mean, he did like all, all the people you see in like the villages and things like that are actual people who live there, and they and they got wages for working in the movie, which is more than they were getting, you know, doing anything else. And so that's and like, so that that's what's so the the just the picture as a whole is really fascinating because it just kind of has like this, you know, you get that you get that concept of like what is what is like the relationship between person to person to communities in like, in like uh, Ford movies, whether it's Clementine, whether it's um, Liberty Balance, things like that. But there's something that's really fascinating about this because there's just different one. You have the complexities of people. Every per- there's not like a good guys, bad guys. There's just it's all everybody's ambiguous because even when you meet them, you're not like you kind of feel like Howard might go crazy and turn on them, or you feel like you know somebody's somebody's gonna die, like an arrow's gonna come in and or a bolt's gonna come in and hit one of them and they'll just die like out of nowhere. Like there's just kind of this there's this ambiguity and there's just this constant feeling of uncertainty that makes this so goddamn entertaining to watch every minute. Yeah. I also think it has a lot to do with like Houston as the director. I think like a lot of movies from the forties and fifties, a lot of black and white movies in particular can have like a sleekness to them or like, um, even like, even like Sam Fuller, who I I love his movies from like the fifties, but they're all very, even though he's doing with dark subject matter, they're all very like sleek. Like everything's meant to be, 
pretty beautiful, you know, and I don't really, people, a lot of people might take issue with this, but I, I don't think I've seen a John Huston movie where I feel like he's actively trying to make me think that everything in it is beautiful. Like, I don't think he's make like, forming the shots so that, that they look beautiful. He's doing it um, for the story, and his stories are often pretty dark subjects matter. Um, and therefore, like, he shoots it in a really gritty and realistic and authentic way, which is just, like, backgrounded by the actors in this movie as well. Yeah, and he also, under like we're talking about, he also understands, like, setting and place. Like, you think about the first, like, what is it, 20, 25 minutes or so of the movie where it's just them, kind of, it's mostly Bogart, but then Kurt and later just meandering around the town. You're just like, what the hell is this movie? Like, you spend so much time in it. Um, I had no like idea with, where it was going, honestly. Yeah, where Bogart's just, like, bumming coins off of John Houston. He's, like, yelling at kids. He's just, like, gambling. <laughs> He's, like, doing these, like, it's just, it's a random ass movie and then you finally get up in the damn mountain and that's when it kind of kicks off but you're just like it's such but at the same time it does it sets the it like it it reminds you of like the importance of kind of like if you're gonna meander you better like bring like have a purpose behind it don't just meander for meander's sake and like those that's important because you get a sense of this is who that bogart's character even though they're like it's a much more inflated version when he's like a crazy person in act. He's always kind of had this, like he's clearly always had this, uh, untrust, untrustworthy, um, kind of greedy side to him where even when he was like the boy, like he had no money. He's like, you, you think of the, the whole interaction between him and the Houston character, the fine that like he asked them the third time is when Houston finally goes, I have helped you three times today. Yeah. Like, please go do something about this. Like you just keep bumming stuff off of me. And then, the, and then it cuts away and he's bumming something, he's trying to bump something off somebody else, you know? And so he's just kind of this character that's constantly in like, you're like, what, like, why is this happening? What's this random, you know, 25 minutes before, the movie actually starts and you're like no that 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 gives you a sense of who this dude is you know before you even get into the actual like treasure seeking yeah and there's lots of good payoffs from that too like i think about the kid with the lottery ticket the payoff on that is so good and Bo- like bogart in that scene i thought was particularly good like i mean it's pretty scram. basic what he's doing but it is so good and then when the kid comes back and is like you won and it's like three weeks later and like oh my god yeah, I mean, it's just such a well-constructed... And I feel like they've done enough in the movie that you kind of forgot that that even happened. Like, it gets you, it gets you caught up in the whole, like, they're working for that dude, he scams them, then they're... Like, you get so caught up in that, you forget about the whole kid. Thing. And then when it, you're like, oh, shoot, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, like, when the kid's like, oh, you'll hear back in three weeks, you're like, all right, this is just a scam, too. So, like, I don't... I, I didn't expect the payoff. And, I mean, I think that's kind of how the whole movie's constructed, is, like, there are payoffs like that throughout um because it's just really like uh well formulated which probably has a lot to do with the novel as well yeah it's just it's a really smart script um and it's one of those scripts that i love even more than most just because it's like something you know alluding to what we talked about in part one it's it like it's a big movie like you feel like it's a big expansive movie like it feels like a real and so to have a script like that nuanced and so keyed in to like character beats not only of the three main characters but like we're talking about of everybody else in this movie like you you feel like you get a sense of personality in every person to a degree that you meet in this that talks for a substantial amount of time um it's another thing going back to just like the the people the like the townspeople and things like that 
This is also a movie. It was, it was, I was, I was laughing thinking about last year when West Side Story came out, and like everybody gave Steven Spielberg like a victory lap because he had the Spanish spoken portions. He didn't provide subtitles. I thought about that too. And I was like, and I'm, th- I'm watching this. I'm like, this whole movie is practically in Spanish, and we don't say anything. You know, like they never give you, you never know unless you speak Spanish what these, what these people, like, what the townspeople or what the um what the the people who live in the jungle like what they're saying to howard or whomever but like it's it was just funny to me i'm like we gave Vic spielberg this giant pat on the back when this movie's just hanging out there no i really thought about that randomly that's so funny you mentioned that i'd completely forgotten but because that was such a weird talking point for west side story in my opinion but it definitely like came back into my mind today but i'm like why why would we champion that? I guess just acknowledging that there are Spanish speakers in the audience, pretty much every audience, but like, well, still. I mean, I'm cynical and I'm just kind of like, it's like a divert, you know, it's kind of just like this, like we're all together diversity play. And you're like, there's nothing wrong with that, but you're just like patting yourself on the back for doing the bare minimum. Like right. that's what's so, that's what's so interesting about this movie because this movie, I don't feel like going, we got a lot of Spanish speaking parts. It was like, we're, it, you can tell that Houston did it because he was like, this feel like if you were wanted, if you're, if we're following Bogart's perspective and he speaks very little Spanish, this is what it would seem like. So that, yeah, you don't understand all the stuff that they're talking to Howard about, but like that seems natural to the characters that they would be like, I don't know what they're saying. Yeah, um, and if you, if you don't know what they're saying, like if, I don't speak Spanish, I don't know if you do, but um, if you don't speak Spanish and you don't know what they're saying, it adds a lot of dramatic tension to it as well because you have to get the layers of then someone interpreting it and doing it correctly and well, and that adds like time to this this moment, which is like usually pretty tense altercations. Um, yeah, well, where it's, it's happening. Well, it just makes it interesting to your point that because, yeah, you have these altercations, you have like these very tense moments that you don't understand what this unless you speak Spanish, what the other half is saying. And you're just like, what is going on right now? And you and again, it leads itself to your it suspends you in this uncertainty for the whole runtime that you're just like, what is going on right now? Um, that like I would be I would be curious. I would like to hear from somebody who does speak Spanish and like I'd be curious if it holds the same weight because to me, yeah, somebody who doesn't really speak a lot of Spanish, um, it worked because it's you're just hung in this like I don't know what they're talking about. But I wonder. I would be curious for some from somebody who's seen this movie who does speak Spanish who goes, yeah, I understand everything they're saying. Like, does it still hold that dramatic tension? No, that's true. That's a great point. The other, the other little facet of it I'd like to mention is they had Max Steiner, who's pretty well known for um, his scores, is much more like kind of traditional. So, uh, for reference, I mean, he did like Casablanca, he did Gone with the Wind, he did The Searchers, he did the King Kong one. We did uh, movie, you know, we talked about a few weeks ago. He's done like um, Top Hat. I mean, he's done like a Stair movies and things like that. He's he. I mean, he was kind of one of the probably if not one of the big name of like classical composers and the way that the score kind of operates in this is kind of fascinating because you think of like more traditional um especially like ford western like the score it's always very kind of like a degree of kind of fanfare-ish america you know american kind of american fanfare music um in this one it's very like it feels much more like a classical, like much more classical in terms of like the use of like strings and pianos um, in a way that would seem much more in line with like 
like something like an adaptation of like Jane Austen rather than this movie about these three guys out in the desert searching for gold. And it, and it kind of adds to this layer of there's like a, I think because like classical music like that can be kind of so uncertain and unnerving because it kind of just has this uncanniness to it. That kind of like the fact that they made that decision rather than making it a more traditional score for like a Western was kind of fascinating to me. I don't know if you picked up on that. Yeah, um, it didn't stand out particularly to me, the score, but I think it kind of lends itself to the whole epic feel you mentioned a little bit about this movie. Like, I think as a whole, the movie feels like, actually, it feels like um, plenty of movies from this time period would have been three hours long with kind of this kind of grandiose story, um, really dramatic. Um, And it has that feeling, which I think the score definitely influences kind of that feeling. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one because like you like I read those and you it, Casablanca really does have like this like like movie and lights movie kind of feel to it you know Gone with the Wind same thing like it's just one that people and like it's it's strange to me I mean this one I think is very well regarded but it, it doesn't really seem to have you know you mentioned like African Queen I th- I've seen that playing in like retrospectives or you know you know th- theaters like that. Um, repertory theaters like that you know they play like African Queen or Key Largo or something like that when it comes to Bogart and I'm like why don't you play this one because I think this one has the level of like scale like like filmmaking scale of a uh, of a Casablanca or a Ford Western or something like that um, but is much but also kind of also has like these really interesting inner per- like it's just weird that this I don't I guess I don't feel like this gets a, the amount of praise that it deserves. It, it's a little bit underrated. I agree. I agree completely. I think it has primarily to do with like it's it's dark, as we talked about. Like it is dark, and I think programming this so that way, like, or programming this so that like a family could come enjoy their Saturday afternoon at the movies with like a movie from the '40s. You know, like we think of a lot of movies at that time as being like cute or like. Uh, even if even if they are more dramatic or not cute necessarily like very romantic or like sweeping or big or something and this is like it's dark there's heavy themes at play as humphrey bogart said he's playing the shit he's not playing like a he's not playing <laughs> the guy in casablanca he's playing an which asshole I, which i like which i like casablanca but i'm just like i think i i think my two favorite performances of him is in this and in, in a lonely place where he's a shit in both of them he's yeah. just great oh yeah um, no, he's so good at that because he, he's got i mean it's not uncommon to say he's got like maybe the most interesting face of any lead performer ever in cinema history and it just i mean it helps like having him here when his face is changing throughout the movie which is a bit of a tangent but like he starts he even gets a shave early in the movie and looks kind of unlike Humphrey Bogart ever has in my opinion like he's so clean shaven and clean cut and he never quite looks like that and then by the end he's just got this huge beard um because they've been out there for what like 10 months yeah it's disgusting it's filled with like sand and dirt and he looks disgusting and disheveled it's such a good transformation coated with mud yeah (laughs) and it's just yeah um the other thing you know as as since it's part of the young critics watch old movies series like the thing i was also thinking about is just how and we've touched on this a little bit like how even like resonant today this feels you know i think that those like at its core like the concepts of like you have this trio of people that you know 
the kind of uh, kooky but wise person, the naive but um, intelligent person, and just kind of this unfiltered, unadulterated greed. Like I think that that gets. I think just on those essences, you know, outside of maybe like the performance beats, those essences and those concepts still play in like today, where you know. Not to say like you like I would I would never want anybody to touch this and remake it. I think like Spike Lee's homage to it in the Five Bloods is probably the best you're gonna get. Um, but like I think that you could pl- like in terms of like a, a capitalistic culture that we're in of like hustle culture and things like that. Like I think that a, a modern per- a person a modern audience person could watch this. And, and get like modern concepts out of it I guess is what I'm saying I think it's a very modern movie yeah I mean I think it honestly and it's very different but it gives a similar to high as like gambling movies give to an extent because you're watching these guys be pretty good while gambling like they're pretty good at finding this gold and then push, succeed, pushing yeah. it to the limit like and obviously bad things happen and bad things happen in gambling movies as well and I think I mean I think you're right like these character tropes like are definitely still modern and still would stick with people. I honestly think, unless you're just someone that really just won't watch black and white movies, which there are people like that, I think everyone would enjoy this movie because it it's gripping from the beginning. Even the meandering 25 minutes, like you're trying to figure it out, it is thrilling from the start. Yeah, I had the same, when I watched it the first time, I think I, I, I had the same reaction to it. And I've had this a number of times with like black and white movies or older movies, but it, it had this. I had the same reaction to this as like when I saw Rear Window for the first time, where I was on the edge of my seat and I forgot that this that was made in the fifties. Um, where like you're watching this and you're just like you you kind of forget you teleport out of whatever the fuck year it is and you're just like I'm like you're just so engrossed. Like it was the same thing. Like I was like this story is so engrossing. Like I yeah. like I think the first time I watched it, I forgot. I don't I, I don't I don't even remember what year it was made. I was just like. This movie is just like really speaking right now, um, and yeah, I, th- I think I think if you're if you're kind of into classic movies, but you're trepidatious on what I'm like, you know, we talked about that a little bit with like some of the silent movies. I'm like, no, even if you're if even if you have a black and white uh, movie thing, like this one, I think is so engrossing. It, and I think it works especially well in black and white because it does lend itself to kind of that that. Um, visual uncanniness the kind of work with the ambiguity of the story um that if it was in color it probably wouldn't have been as effective yeah uh not to prolong this but i was curious if you came across this in your research but like um is there any sort of like post-war uh sentiment behind this movie because it reminded me a lot of um you may have watched this at ut actually of i'm a fugitive from a chain gang the edward g robinson movie um, it reminded me a lot of that, which that was like a post-World War One kind of forgotten man story. And this felt like it had a similar vibe just in Mexico, and it's never mentioned that anyone's a veteran or anything like that. But with it taking place right after, or like being made right after World War Two, I was curious. Um, I didn't come across anything that like kind of any metatextual or just uh, subtextual like kind of a, a analysis of the movie where it was like they're kind of reading this as like this allegory for something um i mean i think i think it plays on like i feel like that's again why you're so attacked like you you're so attracted to it because i think it kind of you know i think in its essence it kind of exudes just uh 
American values of like just greediness, but then this kind of naivety and then, and then just kind of this cutting into the natural elements, especially the elements of like a country that's not the United States of America. Like it kind of, it kind of just has like this deeply like American thematics quality to it. But I think that's what kind of works rather than it being like a textual response or subtextual response to world war two. I think it just feels very like, indebted to the things that whether you agree with them or not make up America. It's a it's a very that's why I say it's so modern. Like I think it makes very astute observations about American capitalism that still resonate in twenty twenty two. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um any any final thoughts on Treasure of the Sierra Madre? Um I think that's all I got. Go watch it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's on, uh, for those who are curious, it's on, I mean, you can find it in most places, but it's on uh, uh, HBO Max right now where you can stream it. So um, I recommend on that, I think, and then I mean, you can rent it in other places, but HBO Max has it, has it streaming through uh, TCM. So give it a, give it a watch. Um, but until then, that will wrap up our show. Thank you so much uh, for listening. Um, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com cinematary on Twitter and Instagram at at cinematary um, and on letterbox at letterbox.com slash cinematary where we post all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Thank you so much to our patrons. If you would like to support uh, cinematary, whether it's $1 or $5 or whatever, um, please head to the patreon.com slash cinematary and show your support for what we're doing. Thank you so much to our uh, patrons. Cam, Chad Newsom, Corey Willingham, Candace Sisson, Ron Hayes, Teresa Morsathi, uh, Titus Arthur, and Tyler Chandler. Thank you so much for your patronage. Uh, next week, we're going to continue our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series with 1948's Bicycle Thieves, which, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I'm very excited to watch. make Andrew watch because Andrew said that he did not like Italian movies on uh, Just as a the podcast. Many, Many, like many, many moons, like in the like uh, like pre a hundred episodes. I, I remember we watched La Dolce Vita, which is not in any way related, other than being Italian, to Bicycle Thieves. Oh yeah, um, I mean he's also got the most but, popular review on Letterboxd for eight and a half, I think. So. Exactly. So, <laughs> well, at some point we're gonna need to go back to a Fellini movie. Um, but I, I I'm I'm curious. I'm kind of excited to watch this because uh, not to go on a whole thing, but like I feel like with a lot of our foreign selections for this it's a lot of like germany it's a lot of japan it's a lot of like um you know french movies and so like for whatever reason we don't watch a lot of italian movies so i'm like let's let's throw like one of the most famous italian movies in there just to kind of deal with that um plus i like we talked about before i haven't seen it since um i watched it in like a college film history class so i'm very excited to like watch it now i mean that had to have been nearly a decade ago so so it'll be interesting but until then thank you all for listening we'll see you next week